Good morning. The scripture reading for today is from Romans 2, 1 through 8. It can be found on page 6 of your bulletin. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. bow our heads and let's pray together. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts, help us to see you, help us to see our need for you. We, we won't ever, ever go to the great physician unless we know we're sick. Uh, we, we, we don't, we, we won't ever care to seek you for life unless we know that deadness remains within us. And so please come and tell us the truth, most especially the truth of your good news. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, early in our relationship, my wife Paula and I uh, dated long distance, separated by 400 miles. And so that meant spending a lot of time talking on the phone. Thank God for Sprint PCS. And that also meant working through a lot of our earliest fights over the phone without being able to see each other, though we could certainly hear each other. And I remember during one visit face-to-face, -face, thank God for Southwest Airlines too, we started getting into some kind of an argument. Uh, I don't remember what it was about. I'm pretty sure I was right. Uh, so I'm getting heated up in this tussle, making my case, right? Dead serious the entire time when suddenly I noticed she, she's smirking. And then she surprises me by bursting out into laughter. You know, and, and I'm seeking justice here. You gotta understand, right? I'm seeking justice and she is giggling. So I'm irate she bursts out saying, so that's what you look like when you're angry. <laughs> I've never seen that before. Of course, I only got more mad, right? Sometimes a person's anger takes a little getting used to, even among those whom we love. Sometimes it can even surprise us. This is no more true than with God. 
did you know that God gets angry? We've been studying the different attributes of God in this current sermon series, Who is God? Looking at his different aspects of his character and of his nature. Uh, Last week we looked at the love of God, rock-solid evidence in Scripture concerning the love of God, a sweet truth, a valuable and precious doctrine. Today we're looking at the wrath of God. The wrath of God. Now let's be honest, that's a characteristic of God that makes us uncomfortable. And it should. It should make us uncomfortable. You know, any cold and callous treatment or discussion of God's wrath or judgment is actually unbiblical and even immoral. It should bring us to our knees. We should talk about it with tears in our eyes. In fact, this doctrine needs to be handled with great care. Pray for mercy for me as I do what I can to present it from God's word to you. After all, it's been used and abused by many Christian preachers and teachers. It might be the reason that some of us, some of you, may have been avoiding the church for some time. And then you finally mustered up the courage to try church again. You show up this morning, and this is what you get. (laughs) I, I know, I know, right? But this is true of him. This is true of him. Dare we believe it about him? Our passage today speaks about this sobering characteristic of God in no uncertain terms. The entire theme of the passage relates to judgment and condemnation, we find those words scattered throughout, but we also find explicit reference to God's wrath. In verse 5, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. And in verse 8, but for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. But what is that? What is God's wrath? What is it not? This passage teaches us four things. We'll look at four things about God's wrath. That God's wrath is righteous. God's wrath is love. God's wrath is hidden. And God's wrath is satisfied. It's righteous, it's love, it's hidden, it's satisfied. Let's take a look. First of all, God's wrath is righteous. What is God's wrath? God's wrath is his judicial anger towards sin and towards evil. According to the old theologian Arthur Pink, the wrath of God is his eternal detestation of all unrighteousness. But we're immediately suspicious of this idea, aren't we? I mean, one of the biggest reasons, I think, is our experience of human anger. I mean, just yesterday, I had to apologize to my daughter for the way I snapped at her unnecessarily. Uh, Human anger, mine most especially, is deeply flawed. It's often selfish often arrogant, 
And so it's hard, sometimes even impossible, for us to imagine a divine anger that might be pure and holy and righteous, perfect. But verse 5 describes the day of God's wrath, judgment day, as the day when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God's wrath is righteous. You see, uh, contrary to our suspicions or even concerns, God's wrath is surely terrible, but it is not immoral. It is not impulsive or arbitrary or irritable or foolish. God doesn't have a bad temper. It's not why he's angry. In fact, again and again, Scripture tells us that God's compassion actually postpones his wrath. We're told in Exodus 34 and Psalm 86 and Psalm 103 and other places that God is slow to anger, compassionate and gracious, forgiving sin, abounding in love. And places like 2 Peter 3 reassure us the Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God's wrath is never out of his control. And it is just. God's wrath is his reaction to human sin as an expression of his divine justice. As verse 2 in our passage states this clearly, now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on what? On truth. God's wrath is always fair. And he's very clear about the standards to which he holds us. Even this passage lays that out for us a little bit. He tells us in verse 8, For those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. And earlier in verse 3, Paul also reminds his readers that they are but mere human beings, even though we all love to serve as the moral judge of all people. In other words, the wrath of God is reserved for those who like to assume the place and the prerogative of God. And we're so, we're self-seeking, right? Paul tells us we're self-seeking. We want to be the center of the universe instead of God. We reject God's truth and then do what? We give ourselves authority to script and define truth. We refuse to follow God, though he graciously invites us, and instead we follow, even chase after, evil. God alone is judge, and yet we very often like to try to sit in his seat as judge over all people. In short, we want to play God. This is what's in the heart of every person. This is the sin underneath every sin. Underneath our, our, our pride, our lies, as we spoke about earlier, even the racism and prejudice of our hearts, even the little forms of irritability and selfishness protecting our time and 
denying our neighbor. This is the sin underneath every sin. We want to sit on God's throne. We wish he were out of the way. We wish God were dead. God says to us, I am God, and you are not, just the facts. And we scream back, back off, buster, don't you dare. It's no wonder we deserve the wrath of God. Someone says, I deserve? How, how can I deserve God's wrath? I, I don't even ever talk to him. I don't think I know him. I don't even know if he exists. But don't you see that even our indifference towards God, even our indifference towards God might be understood as hateful erasure. We've blotted him out out of memory or consciousness or conscience, blotted him out, erased the God of the universe, indeed, the ultimate act of hostility. God's wrath is based on standards such as these, and I was thinking about this earlier this week, how when we lay out expectations to our children, if you're a parent, or to coworkers that you are directing, or whoever it might be, when, when, when people defy your rules or act like you're not around, or if you bless someone with gifts and blessings and no one acknowledges it or even spurns you for it, refusing to say thanks, or using your gifts against you, we get offended. In all those ways, we get offended. When we are replaced or forgotten, how much more so does the God of the universe have a moral right to be offended against us. God's wrath is based on God's perfect standards, but we would deserve it, Paul tells us, even if it were based upon our own standards. Did you notice this in his argument in verse 3? When you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, those around you, and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment. And what is Paul saying? He says, look, no one can live up to the standards of God, and yet it's not even close to being true that anyone could live consistently up to their own moral standards. I mean, you decide in your heart that the one rule that you need to follow is well, I just need to try my best to be a good person. Well, we can acknowledge that you're good, the Bible does, but trying your best, always, your best, how you doing with that? You decide the main thing that you need to not do is discriminate against anyone on any basis, but simply to accept everyone despite their differences, to include and to embrace how about people that disagree with that very principle and commitment of inclusion? How are you doing with that? On the day of God's judgment, Paul is telling us, guess who will be one of the prosecuting attorneys against you? You. 
where God will have opportunity to play back to your own ears before the court of heaven. Even your own words and principles and abiding moralities. Even before he appeals to his own moral standard, his unchanging moral law, God will use your own standards as the standard by which you are judged, and we all fall short, don't we? Even by our own standards, we are guilty before God. And so Paul offers this stunning but very clear statement in verse 5, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God's wrath is righteous. But secondly, let's keep unpacking this. God's wrath is also love. It's almost strange the way that Paul refers to the, the riches of God's kindness. Did you catch that phrasing? The riches of God's kindness right in the middle of his discussion of God's wrath. I mean, it's pretty bold, isn't it? I mean, isn't that a contradiction in terms? The kindness and love of God on the one hand and then the wrath and the judgment of God. Don't they collide? But what if? What if they're not, in fact, contradictions? I mean, here's a question for you. Have you ever gotten angry because someone you love was harmed? Have you ever gotten angry because someone that you love was hurt by another or because they were hurting themselves? see, the Bible tells us that God is angry towards sin, not only because it's a violation of himself, but also because it's a violation of those whom he made and those whom he loves. When you are selfish towards another, when you rob someone of their reputation and dignity, when you do not love as you have been loved, God sees it as a violation of those whom he loves. Here's how Christian author Becky Pippert explains this idea so helpfully. Think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. Friends, if God were not angry at evil and sin, he would not be worthy of our worship. God is angry at evil and evildoers because of the violence that it does to his creation. So understood rightly, the wrath of God is actually evidence that God cares about your suffering. He can't stand it. 
That's good news. It's why there's a sense in which we almost ought to be thankful if our souls would dare. Thankful for this attribute of God. It's actually praiseworthy. God is wrathful because human beings are being harmed by evil. As Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf put it provocatively, God is not wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. God's wrath is righteous. God's wrath is love. Thirdly, God's wrath is hidden. God's wrath is hidden. Here we get to the main point of Paul's argument. See, just prior to our passage in Romans chapter 1, Paul has begun to explain how every person has turned away from God and is in danger of God's judgment. And this is true without exceptions, he says. And so now in chapter 2, Paul explains that not even religious people or moral people, including members of Paul's own ancient religious Jewish community, are exempt from the dangers of God's wrath apart from Christ. No one is exempt, not even the good people, because that's not what saves you, you see? That's what verses 1 through 3 are all about. Paul's saying effectively, you're so sure you're one of the good guys. You're so sure you're one of the good guys in the world. So you go around passing judgment on everyone else. Don't you know, at whatever point you judge one another, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Do you think you will escape God's judgment? So Paul is certainly pointing out the hypocrisy of morally upright people or the self-righteousness of religious people, but here is Paul's surprising conclusion which we need to hear. Religious people, too, are in danger of the wrath of God. Moral people, whether you are a subscriber to traditional moral standards or progressive moral standards, moral people, too, are in danger of the wrath of God, apart from Jesus. How is this possible? You say, well, here's how. Apart from the gospel, Religious and moral people, Paul would say, are just as, what was the word, self-seeking, self-enthroning as the non-religious and immoral people that they so frequently judge. And so we use our good morals and our religious activity for what? Essentially, to self-seek, to prop ourselves up to make ourselves look good, most especially in the eyes of God. Using morality and good deeds and religious activity to bribe God, to control God, to get what you want out of Him. You're not worshiping Him, you're using Him, and it's all about you. So don't be mistaken. The Bible never calls you to mere religiosity. The Bible never calls anybody to mere 
morality. The case is being made clear here that this whole dynamic of the danger of the wrath of God to religious and moral people and the deep self-seeking impulse within their hearts, as clear as it might sound to us as we talk about it here today, Paul says it's actually hidden to them, hidden to us. Because we tend to live by such a double standard with such hypocrisy that we're totally blind to our own sins, to our own flaws. Hey, religious friends, moral good friends, does this describe you? Are you like the person Paul's addressing in verse 4 where you think the silence of God is proof of your innocence? Hey, I ain't dropped dead yet. Must be okay. When in reality, Paul says in no uncertain terms, that in fact it's proof of God's kindness, his forbearance, his patience, because he's holding back his judgment to give you and I an opportunity to repent, to turn from your sins and turn to God. How dare you spit on the mercy of Will you believe the true story about God's wrath all too often hidden, especially to those who have an identity that might be described as religious or overflowing with good morality? Will you believe this true story about God's wrath, but more importantly, Will you believe the full story of God's wrath? Because it is a story of good news. Because, fourthly, fourthly, God's wrath is righteous. God's wrath is love. God's wrath is hidden. But lastly, and most importantly, God's wrath is satisfied in Christ. Again, the apostle writes about the kindness, and the forbearance, and the patience of God. How can God's wrath be related to his kindness? How does God's wrath, in fact, reveal the kindness and the love of God? It's because in Christ, God's wrath, the judgment that we deserve, does not in the gospel have the final word. Several paragraphs after this passage in Romans chapter 3, Paul tells us that God in his love sent his son to quench the wrath of God for us. And he uses this word that we find several times in the New Testament, a big word, a theological word called propitiation, which means absorbing or quenching the wrath of God, the anger of God on behalf of another. And so Romans 3 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Jesus is our propitiation before God. Jesus takes the wrath of God in our place. And don't miss it at all, the wording that we found there in verse 25 of Romans chapter 3, that God put forward Jesus as a propitiation. This was not Christ, the Son of God, begging the Father to forgive us. God himself, the God of this just wrath, in his love, this same God gave his Son in love to absorb the wrath that you and I deserve. This is the mystery of the gospel. First John 4, verse 10, uses the same language, and this is love. I mean, how do you define the love of God, friends? In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. Now, John, how do you know what the love of God is? That he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That God's wrath was propitiated by the blood of Christ. All of our debt was paid by him. The hell that we deserve for our self-seeking sin. Christ suffered in our place on the cross. And here's good news. On the simple basis of the principle of double jeopardy, if it's true that Jesus suffered God's wrath in the place of those who embrace him by faith and love, that means if you're in Christ, there's no more of God's wrath remaining for you. Not ever. It's been extinguished by the love of God in the cross of God in Christ. That we can sing as we will sing in just a few minutes. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid, here in the death of Christ I live. Don't you know it's this sweet understanding of the love of God in Christ, this sweet but stunning understanding of the love of God in Christ, that the wrath of God would be taken by the Son of God in our place. This is what will change your heart. You see, what's going to turn your heart towards God? What today, maybe you've been running from God or maybe you've been cold towards God. Maybe you don't know what to do with God. What's going to change your heart? Listen, it's not wrath alone. Paul did not say, so therefore God spoke his wrath, now come turn to him. No, he says, verse 4, God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. It's his kindness, his love, his mercy, his patience, his forbearance, his forgiveness. Seeing 
in front of the backdrop of God's wrath and judgment. Where you can see what you are being saved from. You can see why the Bible calls the love of God a, a gift. Where you can see why it was necessary for Christ to suffer on your behalf. Where you can see and understand why it was on the cross that Jesus cried out with terror and horror, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was suffering hell, wrath that you and I deserved. And yet he gives himself to us freely as a gift. A gift if only we would simply put our trust in him. If only simply we would say, I give up. I can't make it right on my own. I can't save myself. I can't earn my way into God's favor or purchase God's kindness with my morality or goodness. It must be given to me freely by grace. And Jesus says to you, grace is exactly what I have for you. And this, dear friends, is precisely where we find grace to overcome these terrible horrors and divisions by race, by ethnicity, and by warring political ideologies. Here at the foot of the cross, don't you see? Because Paul makes it clear to say there's no difference, not a single person. It's a humbling statement. Not a single person that can say that they are exempt or excused from the wrath of God, not in themselves. In fact, Paul will even go on to say in just the next few verses that there's no difference between Jew or Gentile, even ethnic groups. In other words, part of what gives us the humility to find solidarity in family-like community is knowing that we stand equal as sinners, guilty, deserving God's wrath, but in Christ also equal. Sinners saved by grace, not because of our merit, not because of our families of origin or background, not because we're thinking right or got it all right, but rather because Jesus died and resurrected right for you and for me. The propitiation of the wrath of God, this gift from God, Jesus, the Son of God. Can we find shared humility and solidarity today, importantly, in this church and across churches around the country and through our model, Lord willing, around our country? Because we believe in these truths, even the trembling truths of the wrath of God and the kindness of God, the good news of God. Dear friends, it's tough. It's tough. God is wrathful. God must be wrathful. But God is good. Do you see this? Let's pray. Jesus, we pray that you would keep opening our eyes and even when we want to shut them, <laughs> when we want to close them shut, not see what you're trying to help us to see, help us to see again. Pry open our hearts. Send a shot of grace and hope 
into our souls and help us to see all the glory that we have in Christ alone. Christ alone. Where the wrath of God, in whom the wrath of God was satisfied. And so we boast in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing this song.